Our second lesson for today comes from John's Gospel. We are in chapter 14, reading verses 1 through 14. And again, I invite you to turn in your text, your Bibles, and follow along as I read. Jesus is speaking. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. The text before us today is perhaps one of the most beloved uh, passages of Scripture for the clear promise from the lips of Jesus that there is an eternal home awaiting all those who trust in him for their salvation. Uh, Whenever I plan a funeral worship service with a family, I always ask them about any scripture that they would like to hear or from which they would like me to preach. And while they do not always know the scriptural reference, uh, quite often they refer to this passage in kind of a hesitant, embarrassed way, fully aware that they are not quoting it exactly right, but they eventually describe it Uh, such that I know what it is that they are asking for, because they want to hear once again the assurance that the Lord is busy creating a place for us with him. And as a result, having heard this passage read so often in the context of a funeral, we too may love it because of the comfort that we draw from verses 2 and 3 never realizing that the world absolutely hates this passage because of what Jesus claims in verse 6. 
Most of the world's religions and mythologies and religious philosophies describe some sort of pleasant afterlife, and most of them are seen as a reward for a life well-lived, or at least well-intentioned, or perhaps their conception is some form of endless reincarnation, or maybe they say that your eternal life arrives through a rising consciousness that eventually is subsumed into a divine mind somewhere. But few figures in religious history make the claim that Jesus does here which is that there is no way to eternal life apart from him. A few of you may be familiar with the name of Alan Watts. He was a prominent voice back in the 50s and 60s as an author who sought to coalesce the world's religions into an amalgam of thought, having been an Anglican priest for a short period of time and then not, after being heavily influenced by the Eastern religions. This is what he wrote about Christianity in the preface to his book, Beyond Theology. Christianity is a contentious faith, which requires an all-or-nothing commitment to Jesus as the one and only incarnation of the Son of God. My previous discussions did not take proper account of that whole aspect of Christianity, which is uncompromising, honorary, militant, rigorous, imperious, and invincibly self-righteous. They did not give sufficient weight to the church's disagreeable insistence on the reality of a totally malignant spirit of cosmic evil, on everlasting damnation, and on the absolute distinction between creator and creature. These thorny and objectionable facets of Christianity cannot be shrugged off as temporary distortions or errors. You see, in Alan Watts' attempts to create or treat the claims of Christianity like silly putty, he came to this realization that Christianity stands alone. The claims of Jesus were so absolute they could not be reinterpreted in a way that made them amenable to the world or being syncretized with the rest of the world's religions. And it was these claims that caused the church of the first century to be at odds with the culture around them and eventually brought them into the cancel culture of their day. The panoply of gods that the Romans offered to the world were such that they had little trouble adding one more god to it, the Christian god, to their collection. What they could not understand was the church's refusal to reciprocate. But the first century disciples explained that they could worship no other god than the one and only god of heaven. And the result for them was persecution. As many a believer was burned at the stake or thrown to the lions or crucified in the public square. Well, it is to this future that Jesus is now preparing his closest disciples. And what we find in this portion of John's gospel is a message 
that they need to internalize to such a degree that when times of trial and persecution come, they will be unflagging in their zeal, unwavering in their commitment, and uncompromising in their faith. Jesus must prepare them for a world of trouble because as he will tell them later, the world is going to hate you because of me, but have no fear. I have overcome the world. So, just a reminder from last week on the heels of learning that there is a traitor in their midst and that Jesus will soon be leaving them and that Peter will soon deny the Lord three times. Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Now when we put ourselves into the disciples' shoes, this command seems to be incomprehensible. Lord, how can you command that we not be troubled? I mean, you're painting a picture that is somber at best and hopelessly dire at worst. And it was only six days ago that the people were hailing you as the Messiah. What has happened? Have you ever found yourself in a circumstance where everywhere you turned it looked like your world was coming apart at the seams? And then the Lord brought this verse to your mind. (laughs) Let not your heart be troubled. And you thought to yourself, well, that's easy for you to say. You're sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Try facing what I'm facing right now. But that is just the thing, is it not? I mean, we can easily picture ourselves in the disciples' shoes, but let us consider for a moment the shoes of Christ right here, right now. Remember, he knows that his hour has come. We read in verse 21, last chapter, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Why? Because he knows that the cross and his suffering is but a few hours away. Internally, his soul is beginning to experience the full weight of the impending trial that no mere man would ever be able to bear. But that is just the thing. This man is about to carry that weight alone, and yet here he is telling his disciples that they are to steady their hearts in the face of all this and all that is to come. They are to put their faith in God. They are to put their faith in him. And when they see him impaled on the cross with a crown of thorns on his head and hear his lamentable cries unto God the Father, they are to entrust their futures to him because he can complete the trial that is coming. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. Despite a traitor in the house, despite my leaving you for a time, despite your current weaknesses, you need to trust God and trust me. Now, friends, we need to take comfort here because this word of promise and assurance that Jesus gives to the disciples is not only for them, but also for any believer who finds themselves in dire straits. 
It may be financial, it may be relational, it may be physical or medical or psychological or marital or occupational or whatever dire strait you can imagine. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, the command that Jesus makes to you is the same. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now how can he say that? Because he is the good shepherd. He knows exactly where all his sheep are at any given moment in time. He knows all about their cares and their concerns. He knows all about their strengths and their weaknesses. He knows if they are regenerate yet or not. He knows all about their gifts and their foibles, their sins and their inclinations and their secrets and their loves. There is never a second in time when they are outside of his loving gaze, which is why he can say, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now that does not mean that we will not experience trial and tribulation. We most certainly will. But whatever we face, it will not be outside of his good will for us. And we will not be lost to him because he's preparing a place for us and he is preparing us for the place. So that when the moment of our death arrives, we will be ready and we will be welcomed into his presence. Now we need to take confidence in this for if we do not, our lives will be filled with anxiety and spiritual unrest. We need to picture ourselves safely in the palm of the Savior's hand. I mean, I don't know if you had that infantile image that you, you may have had as a child in VBS when they taught you the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. That's helpful here. Because as a kid, you kind of have a sense of how big the world is. But when you believed the lyric that God has the whole world in his hand, then how enormous must God be? How comforting is that image to know that we are safely and securely in the palm of his hand? Now these disciples are not there yet themselves. They are feeling uneasy. You get a sense that there is trepidation in the air. Peter has already sought an answer to where Jesus is going. And now Thomas raises the question once again. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? The Apostle John has, up until now, recorded no less than nine instances when Jesus has referenced that the Father has sent him, clearly implying that he has come from God. They have no excuse to not know where Jesus has come from. And Jesus has also referred to the fact that he will be with them for only a little while longer, and then he will be returning to the Father who sent him. So, they've evidently not been listening all that carefully, or they're not connecting all the dots. And so Jesus offers the answer of all answers to Thomas's inquiry. This is Jesus' sixth I am statement. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Now this I am statement is what the world hates so much about Christianity and about Jesus. Because it offers eternal life to all who will come, but one must come through a very narrow gate. What did Jesus say back in chapter 10? Another I am statement. I am the gate. I am the door. The only way into the sheepfold is through the gate, and I'm that gate. And here he is reiterating that, saying, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, the world considers this to be horribly exclusionary. They deem this Christian God to be unjust, very unloving, if he's going to insist that it is only by faith in Jesus that we are allowed to approach the gates of heaven. But it is quite the opposite. You see, the problem that we have is that in our current state of fallenness, it is impossible for us to approach the throne of God without being consumed by God's very essence. God is holy, holy, holy. And unless we are made holy, we will be turned to dust. So unless we are willing to receive the gracious gift of the righteousness of the Son of God imputed to us in exchange for our filthy rags of unrighteousness being imputed to Him, there is no safe passage to the presence of God. It's not that God is unloving by rejecting every other religious idea that man creates. Quite the opposite. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now notice that Jesus is giving this I am statement to the disciples, not to the public per se. This is the essence of the message that they will be commanded to carry throughout the world. They do not understand it completely yet, The next few hours and days will be necessary for them to see the whole picture, but the exclusive nature of Christ's command will be essential if they are to reach the sheep who belong to him. If Jesus is the one and only way to the Father, that means that apart from his atoning work, there is no hope in any other religious faith. If Jesus is the one and only truth, to understanding the God who created us in his image, then there is no enlightenment in any other religious philosophy and it should be abandoned. If Jesus alone offers life, then every other religious faith is deceiving the world and in the end, their adherents will only find death. The fact that the disciples are not fully comprehending all that Jesus is saying, Jesus attributes to their failure to fully know him up until this point. If you had known me, he says. He's not saying that they do not know him rightly at all. He's saying that they have not fully plumbed the depths of understanding who Jesus is. Their vision has been impaired for a variety of reasons, but all of that is about to change. Christ's death and resurrection and 40 days of interactions with them and then his ascension and their being filled with the Holy Spirit will all have an impact 
on their ability to see him as the full incarnation of the Son of God. So, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. This is an important point for people to grasp and to understand. Because there are those who have a problem with Jesus but want to say that they are believers in God. Their problem with Jesus might be that they do not believe what they think is revisionist history concerning his nativity, his miracles, his resurrection, or whatever. They're willing to avow that there was such a man as Jesus of Nazareth, but they attribute most everything else written uh, about him to mythic qualities imposed upon him to make him seem larger than life. But Jesus is saying that there's only one way for us to look at God rightly, and that is by looking at Jesus. And the more we look at him, the more accurately we see the Father. Well, Philip is confused by this, and he blurts out, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. So here's Jesus internally counting down the minutes and the hours until he makes the ultimate sacrifice, and one of the chosen disciples asks him for a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus' answer must have been tinged with sadness and a heaviness of heart. Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now there's a little flavor here of the college football coach whose team was just humiliated 49 to nothing, staring for a long time at his dejected and embarrassed team after the game, realizing that they need to go back to square one, and so he holds up a ball, and he says, fellas, this is a football? I mean, this is that kind of moment. The most important moment in redemptive history is but a few hours away, and one of the disciples who will be carrying the good news to the farthest reaches of the earth has not yet recognized the divine nature resident in the man with whom he has spent the last three years. His own doubts about that rise to the surface here, and he asks for a sign. You want a sign? Here's your sign. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? What he does not mean is that he will become a genie in a bottle who grants unlimited wishes. What he means is that up until now, he has been limited in that he occupies space and time as the incarnated Son of God. He tirelessly ministered to all those who came to him, but he could only be in one place 
at one time. But what is about to happen is that he will ascend to the right hand of the Father and he will send to the disciples the Holy Spirit and from his new vantage point he will continue to minister to the world through the mediated ministry of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to reach maturity, Paul writes to the Ephesians. You see, the evil one is about to be restrained so that he can no longer deceive the nations regarding God's plan for salvation. And so the saints, they're going to be able to achieve the Great Commission largely unimpeded. The greater works are not a reference to miraculous, out-of-the-ordinary signs wrought at the hands of the apostles, but rather the greater works will be the multiplying of believers through the proclamation of the gospel. And wherever they go, they will understand what Jesus said to them back in chapter 4. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Now friends, here's the thing. If you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus, you'll never be able to know God. Because he is the only way. He's the only truth. He's the only life. And apart from him, we will never see God. So if you have resisted coming to Christ, I implore you to put that resistance away. Turn to him in repentance even now. For he will in no wise cast out those who sincerely come to him. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray for a moment today.